Thanks, Alyssa. <clears throat> My name is Wes. I'm one of the pastors here. And Sam, the worship team, thank you for leading us in worship. I've never kneeled in a service like that through a worship song. And I was glad that I was up front because I assumed everybody else was. And, and so it was just one of those wonderful moments where we use our body in worship, not just our, our voices, but use our bodies to worship. Phil Muncy was in a golfing party of four. All four were pastors. The youngest and, and most junior of the foursome asked a question. He said, so what does it take to be a successful pastor of a thriving ministry? Two of them, two of these pastors were pastoring churches that were very large, very successful. And so Phil Munsey was looking forward to learning from these successful pastors. And the first pastor responded with an intimidating summary of his weekly schedule. While Monday and Tuesday are usually spent traveling to those places where I have speaking engagements. On Wednesday, I have staff meeting with over 30 plus staff. Our packed out midweek service is on Thursday. Every Friday, I devote time to writing. My seventh book is going to be published next month. Saturday, I prepare for the multiple Sunday services. And then on Sunday, I spoke to over 10,000 people in a variety of services. With a just slight variation, the second pastor described his week. Then the young pastor turned to Phil and asked, how about you? How do you spend your week? And Phil looked at him and he said, and he was realizing the stories were, were pretty amazing. And so he, he kind of came at it from a, a different point of view with, with candor and humor. And he says, well, on Monday, I quit. On Tuesday, I realized that I, I can't do anything else. And so I hire myself back. On Wednesday, I preached to a half-empty auditorium. On Thursday, I'm discouraged because it was half-empty. On Friday, I open the word and, and, and begin searching for that message that's going to just light a fire under the congregation and, and spur them on to amazing growth. On Saturday, I'm all fired up. Sunday, I, I preach my heart out. And on Monday, I quit. There's much truth to this description. The weekly cycle of ministry is a constant blend of highs and lows, which is no different to your week. We just think ministry should look different, should be more up than down, less mundane, from glory to glory. Jesus' ministry had this up and down feeling to it. Last Sunday, Jesus healed the son of a royal official. We're told that that official and, and his entire family believed. This was in the Gospel of John chapter 4, the, the last part. And, and this was an amazing high, a ministry high. And we've just heard the story for this morning. Alyssa read it to us from John 5, verses 1 to 18. Did you take note of how this story ended? Not the same high as the previous story. Rather, the story ends with an ominous, threatening tone. 
So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him, to kill Jesus. Despite this menacing tone, I still want to call this story, I want to call our message this morning, Signs Revealing Jesus' Glory, Part 2. The story is Jesus returning to Jerusalem from Galilee. Last Sunday we learned that Jesus had gone up from Jerusalem to Galilee because of the opposition he was experiencing in Jerusalem. And he says a prophet wasn't honored in his hometown. Jerusalem had become hostile toward him, while the Galileans were more welcoming. Jerusalem, the center, the spiritual center of religious life for the Hebrew people, should have recognized and welcomed Jesus. They should have brought him in and said, Whoa, welcome here. Galilee, a northern outpost, the backcountry cousins, had no business recognizing Jesus. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus has returned to Jerusalem, his spiritual hometown. He is there to celebrate a Jewish festival. It's called a holy day in in, in the New Living Translation. The Hebrew people were instructed to return to Jerusalem to celebrate certain feasts, certain times where they would come to the temple, they would worship together, they would celebrate, they'd be together as God's people in Jerusalem. The Hebrew people believed that Jerusalem was the center of the universe. And Christians down through the centuries have continued to believe it. In the 16th century, Henry or Heinrich Bunting, a German pastor theologian, created a map that looked like a clover leaf. And at the center of this map, the center of the clover leaf, you can't see it, but is Jerusalem. If you could read it, it has Jerusalem written under it. And so you have Asia, you have Europe, and you have Africa, but Jerusalem is the center of the universe. The temple, God's dwelling place, set this geographical location apart from all others. Arriving from the north, it appears that Jesus entered the city through one of the many gates that were up north. John references the Sheep Gate because that was the one closest to the Pool of Bethesda where this story takes place. When I was in Jerusalem in 2012, we were taken to the ruins of Bethesda and they were incredible just to see what they've been able to uncover. And There's archaeological recreations of what this truly would have looked like in Jesus' time. So crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on these porches. In many of the newer translations, verse 4 is removed from the text and placed as a footnote. You don't see it between verse 3 and verse 5. It's believed that this was inserted by a scribe later just to help people understand what was going on here. It doesn't occur in some of the oldest manuscripts. But this is what it says, and it helps us understand what's going on. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches, waiting for a certain movement of the water. For an angel of the Lord came from time to time and stirred up the water. 
And the first person to step in after the water was stirred was healed of whatever disease he had. One of these sick had been sick for 38 years. And this is remarkable to think of how long these people truly lived. And we don't have statistics from back then, but we can go back to the 17th century. And the average age in the 17th century was 27 years old. A quarter of children didn't reach the age of five. Half the children didn't make it through their teen years. Here, this, thir- this man who had been sick for 38 years, incredible patience, amazing patience, came across a cartoon in the Marketplace magazine. This is a Mennonite business entrepreneurial magazine, and it, it's a picture of a newsroom. And one reporter says, I'm glad you asked that, Marsha. Our latest poll indicates that for most Canadians, instant gratification is no longer fast enough. We want it now, immediately. This man had been sick for years, and for years he'd lost the race. The water was stirred, and by the time he got in, it was too late. Someone had beat him. And Jesus sees him lying there, understanding the length of time that he had been there, that he had waited. He asks, would you like to get well? And this is a yes or no question. But he gets an excuse. And the man says, well, I just have no one to get me there. No one to help me. And Jesus ignores that excuse, his response. And he says, stand up. Pick up your mat and walk. And the man does. He's healed. He gets up, rolls up his mat, and proceeds to leave the pool of Bethesda. Imagine if that was you. For 38 years, you've gone nowhere without someone's help. For 38 years, if you wanted to get from here to there, someone had to take you. You're now standing upright. Your mattress tucked under your arm, elation. Excitement, joy overwhelms you. The word that Jesus uses here for stand up, get up, rise, is the same word used in the New Testament for a resurrection from the dead. This man was as good as dead. No hope, no chance, no way. Rise, Jesus said, and the man rose up from his dead life story isn't finished. In verse 9, we run straight into the infamous but. Some refer to this but as the dreadful but. And I suspect you've experienced this but, and I'm not talking anatomy, I'm talking grammar. Someone says something kind to you. Man, are you looking good today? But... That haircut. Did your dad give you that haircut? Everything before the butt is forgotten. And all you remember is the criticism. And you know that you're not going back to your dad for a haircut. There's a dreadful butt in our story. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. 
Jesus, you ruined it for yourself. You just had to wait one more day. It wouldn't have made a difference to this fella. Why did you do it? This is the third sign in the Gospel of John. What was the first sign? Cana, what happened in Cana? Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Dream keeps saying, Wes, go get your ears tested. So you have to shout it out. What happened in Cana? Water into wine right at a wedding banquet. The second miracle, what happened? Cana again. Healing, right? Healing of the royal official's son from afar. Two signs. Now we have our third sign. Last Sunday we discovered that signs are not about themselves. A sign points to something bigger, better, more important than itself. The royal official saw past the healing, the miraculous sign to see Jesus in all his glory. And he believed. He believed along with his entire household. Here in today's story, the officials, the Jewish leaders, failed to see. They failed to believe. Instead, they objected. So they said to the man who was cured, You can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, The man who healed me told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that? They demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. In my reading through the Bible plan, I've been working my way through the Torah, the first five books, and I just finished Leviticus. In both Leviticus and in Exodus, we, have, we are given instructions regarding the Sabbath. And so in Exodus chapter 35, we're given these instructions. These are the instructions the Lord has commanded you to follow. You have, six day, you have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day must be a Sabbath day of complete rest, a holy day dedicated to the Lord. Anyone who works on that day must be put to death. You must not even light a fire in any of your homes on the Sabbath. Very strong words. Disobedience results in death. By the time Jesus comes along, these rules and regulations governing the Sabbath have been worked out to every detail. They knew what they could and couldn't do. And so it shouldn't surprise us that carrying a mat on the Sabbath was against the law. Healing on the Sabbath was against the law. It was forbidden. And if you're not familiar with this word Sabbath, it comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which is their word for Saturday. And Shabbat, the Sabbath, began at sundown on Friday and continued all the way to sundown on Saturday. Christians have transferred Sabbath to Sunday, and so when we talk about the Sabbath, we're usually talking about Sunday. And for some of us, Sabbath-keeping is very much a part of who we are. The church created its own legalism around this day. The lingering influence of our upbringings keep us from doing certain things on the Sabbath. I don't know what you don't do on the Sabbath, but I don't mow the lawn on the Sabbath. 
That's where I draw the line. We shouldn't be too quick to judge these officials for their pettiness, their legalism. When you read the Exodus passage, keeping the fourth commandment is serious stuff, punishable by death. The intent of Sabbath keeping was to give life, sustain life, take a break, worship your creator, play, do this in a seven-day rhythm. How easy it's to turn something that's supposed to give life into an instrument of death. The Jewish officials were on a mission. Their goal was to make Israel holy. And the only thing standing in the way of God, sending his Messiah, his deliverer, was sin. And so they had to get rid of sin in the land. And once they got rid of sin, God could get rid of Rome. Sin, impurity, adultery kept God from fulfilling this promise. The Jewish officials focused on three areas. One was circumcision. This identified who was in and who wasn't. Then there was dietary regulations, what you could or couldn't eat. If you ate the wrong thing, you were unholy, you were sinful. And then Sabbath keeping. Many of Jesus' confrontations with the officials The leaders was in one of these three areas. And our story focuses on Sabbath keeping. This man, this lame man, had no idea who healed him. This was a miracle of grace, of mercy, undeserved, unmerited, a pure gift. Of all the people at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus chose him. And the man misses it. He misses it. He fails to see Jesus' glory revealed. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, Now you are well, so stop sinning, or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. The man failed to see Jesus' glory revealed. And John tells us that instead the man reveals the identity of Jesus to the officials. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called, his, he called God his father. Thereby, thereby making himself equal with God. This healing story ends much differently, in a much different place than last week's healing story. In our story last week, there was this, wow, how did you do it, Jesus? And then, do it again, Jesus. Come on, do it again. And, wow, I believe. I believe you, Jesus. In the healing of the official son, Jesus' glory is revealed, which results in belief. That was signs revealing Jesus' glory, part one. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. Our story today highlights once more the tension that exists between those who believe and those who don't believe. He came to that which was his own. And his own 
did not receive him. In today's story, Jesus' glory is revealed, but it goes unnoticed. We don't see it. We even question, how can this be glory? Listen to what John wrote. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus. In the NIV, it says, began persecuting Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. Then verse 18, so the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. The Jewish officials were outraged with Jesus' actions. He broke the Sabbath. He claimed equality with God. These were the charges that were going to be brought against him at his trial. These are the charges that will convict him later. The first healing of the royal official son ends in faith. The second healing ends in death threats. Both signs reveal Jesus' glory. Jesus' ultimate glory will be revealed in his death. Our story this morning launches that campaign that would eventually lead to Jesus' arrest, his conviction, and his death. This is Signs Revealing Jesus' Glory, Part 2. As followers of Jesus, we should expect the same glorious treatment. Our staff, last weekend on, on Sunday afternoon to Tuesday noon, we're at a pastor's spouse retreat, and we thank you as a church for allowing us, sending us there. We had a, a wonderful time together. And one of the speakers was Bob Davis, who is an MD mission mobilizer who lives in this area. And he talked about what God is doing in Laos, the, the amazing things that, that God is doing. He told a story about a woman who had come from a, a faraway village down to one of the, the main centers where a hospital was because she needed to be healed. And for some reason, the hospital turned her away. And for some reason, she found a local group of Christians. And they prayed for her in the name of Jesus, and she was healed. She didn't know Jesus. She went back to her village. She told this story to the people in her village. And there was one man who heard that story, and he prayed, and he was healed. He didn't even know Jesus. And so they sent a delegation down and asked for people to be sent up to tell them about this Jesus. And a group of Christians came up and, and shared with them the good news of Jesus. And many of them received and believed in Jesus. But Laos is a communist country. Sharing your faith is illegal. And so many of the pastors there find themselves in prison up to a year at a time. And Bob described story of one of the pastors, and in the cell that they were put in was designed for six people. And they had 20 people in it. And, and these weren't all pastors. These were whoever was in the jail was in the cell. And the cell was only four feet high. They, they had to be bent over the whole time they were in the cell. And then someone asked this man, how can you live with so much suffering and persecution? And he responded, haven't you read your Bible? The Apostle Peter understood this completely in 1 Peter chapter 4. Dear friends, 
Don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for, those, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed, for the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. Signs, healing signs, reveal Jesus' glory. This morning, I've asked Adeline Fast to come and share her story, her testimony of how God touched her and brought healing into her life. So Adeline, I invite you to come and share. Before I start, I just need to tell you a little detail about myself, that I have a tremor, and when I get nervous, I really start to shake badly, so if you see me shaking, don't worry about me, I'm fine. (laughs) As many of you know, I have been very sick this past fall. Um, Early September, I was diagnosed with a very bad intestinal infection called C. diff, It is extremely contagious. It's one of those really bad superbugs that you hear about in hospitals. And um, so what happens is they put you on strong antibiotics to kill the bug. So I was put on two weeks antibiotics, and it looked like everything was getting under control. And at the end of the two weeks, three days later, the infection was back. So back to the doctor, back to more antibiotics. And this went on all fall. And I was in isolation for at least two months. Um, The church was praying for me. The care group was praying for me. My friends were praying for me. Hans and I were praying for me. And nothing was happening. I was doing everything that the doctors were saying. And I was getting weaker and weaker, lost a ton of weight, Uh, was getting very hopeless and I will admit very fearful. The research told me that if the antibiotics don't kill the bug, the bug will kill you. So one day as I was thinking about this, it just occurred to me, you know, if God doesn't do anything, that's what's happening to you. And I realized I am totally dependent upon the Lord. And I thought, what better place could I be? Whose hands am I in better care of than the Lord's? And you know, that just filled me with joy. And I was reading at that time in the Gospel of Luke, and I was reading about Jesus healing one person, and then Jesus healing another person, And one morning, I read again about Jesus healing somebody else, and it was incredible. I had this deep inner sense that God was speaking to me personally, and he was saying, Adeline, I want to heal you. And I I was stunned. 
And I thought, what, is, what does that mean? Is he going to heal me instantaneously? Am I going to need to take a couple more months of antibiotics and go through this cycle of infection, antibiotics? Or is he going to give me the ultimate healing, death? And you know, I just, I was good with it. It was like my hopelessness literally fell away. The fear disappeared, and I was okay with it. Whatever God chose to do with me. And a week later, Pastor Dave came to visit. I was finally at the place where I could get out a little bit. And I asked him, I said, would it be possible for the elders of the church to pray over me and anoint me with oil for healing? Because I sense I need to ask for that. It's, this is all part of what I'm going through. And so that Sunday, that's what they did after the service. And it was a very special experience for me. The following week, I was finally able to get in to see a specialist. And he looked at me, he listened to me, and he said, you are stable. Stay on your antibiotics yet, finish off this course of antibiotics that you were on, go and see your children for Christmas, and when you come back, quit the, go off the antibiotics and we'll see what happens. Come back and see me. So we went off to see our kids for two weeks. We got back early January. I went off the antibiotics, a bit in fear and trembling, I will admit. And it's not come back. And it's been a long road back. It's been several months of slowly, slowly getting my strength and my energy back. But here I stand, and I just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done in my life. Thank you for the prayers of this group of people here who have prayed for me and stood by me. Thank you for my husband who's cared for me. So I just want to give praise to the Lord. I don't know why he chose to heal me, but I say thank you. I want to invite the worship team to come up at this time as well. We're going to provide opportunities for healing. If you thought kneeling through worship was awkward, moving to the cross may feel very awkward for you. But have courage. Step out in faith. We're going to have a, a prayer team and I'll invite the prayer team to head to the cross in the corner. It's a little less busy over there, less crazy without chairs being moved around. So if you desire healing, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, allow the body to come alongside you and pray over you. Allow the healing spirit of God to be upon you. Take courage to do that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus' 